Welcome to another episode of the Focus Seedcast. I'm your host, Corey, aka Focus, and today I'm talking with Willie Denner of Little Seed Garden in Chatham, New York. Willie has been farming vegetables since 1995 and also raises cattle. In this episode, Willie gives a deep dive on how he manages fertility on his farm using cover crops and cattle. We also talk about our reverence for tobacco and the challenges we see with the current state of farming and land use in the United States. If you're a farmer or really into the concepts of regenerative agriculture, this is going to be a great conversation. Without any further delay, let's get to the episode. Hey, Willie, how you doing? Good. Glad to be here, Corey. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I've been interested in the stuff you're doing, and I'm hoping we'll get into some, something that'll be interesting to your listeners. Yeah, likewise. We've been uh, following each other on Twitter, and I know mm-hmm. most of the people who uh, listen to this and I interact with on Instagram. So it's kind of nice to see, uh, see the uh, face, of the other social medias. And uh, yeah, you have a pretty interesting account. Um, you have, a, you have a farm here in New York, right? Yeah. We're uh, my wife, Claudia Kenny and I operate little seed gardens. It's in Chatham, New York. We farm about a hundred acres. Um, we've been, growing commercially since uh, 1995, certified organic the whole time. We produce uh, vegetables, uh, beef, and registered Randall breeding stock uh, cattle. And we sell through, uh, we've done pretty much every kind of sales in the past, but right now we're doing uh, one farmer's market in uh, Westchester County and we have an on-farm CSA and we have a consignment case in um, a local foods co-op that we helped start in the town of Chatham. Cool yeah I actually uh, ran a CSA for for many years uh, I had my own market garden did that for about six years so I, I know how the the vegetable growing world works um, but how did you end up getting into farming? Well, it's, uh, it really has been a lifelong interest and it's mostly around, uh, trying to find a way to take responsibility for getting my life in connection with other people in the, the community of life with creation and, uh, I grew up in <clears throat> Anne Arundel County, Maryland, right on the Magathy River, and uh, basically fished every day as a child. And I thought I might be a commercial fisherman, but I also didn't want to be the guy to take the last fish out of the sea, which seemed like it might be happening in my lifetime. So uh, farming looked to me like a way that I could... Uh, take responsibility for my life and also maybe have the potential to leave what was giving me life in the condition that it could continue to do that for other people. My, a lot of people in my family gardened. My uh, great-grandfather and my grandfather were ship's joiners. And during the depression, my um, great-grandfather moved out of Philadelphia and bought a small plot of land in Anne Arundel County. And um, he sold to my grandfather. So I had a bunch of family all very close to each other and everybody gardened. During the uh, Second World War, the Victory Garden movement was very strong because people were expected to be able to take care of themselves and have something to contribute to the war effort. So uh, everybody had large gardens and I grew up in that and uh, got interested in that. My uh, grandfather had a lot of um, old USDA publications, especially the yearbook of agriculture that I spent a lot of time with as a child. And um, his brother married into a commercial produce growing family in South Jersey. And I would pour over these books and everybody would 
tell me, don't end up like your uncle Gene. So I had some um, understanding of what the prospect of a life in commercial agriculture might look like and um, put it off and went to school and was making my living um, as a carpenter. But my wife and I always had large gardens. We figured out how to put ourselves in situations where we had access to land. And that kind of just grew to the point where um, we were just constantly trying to learn and connect with people who were trying to get a start in uh, ag. And it looked like uh, the only reasonable prospect was market gardening in terms of starting with a small stake and being able to build something. So we uh, looked for land for a long time and we had a small stake from working other jobs, but uh, looked like a choice of either buying land or farming. So we rented and kind of figured things out as we um, went along, built markets and kind of learned how to do some production. And then after seven years of renting, we bought our place in Chatham and we're still paying a mortgage on part of it, but we've got about half of the farm paid for. That's good. Yeah. That's, that's one of the biggest problems with farming, especially in my area. And I'm sure you're seeing it, you know, more in upstate New York uh, recently, but yeah, just land prices and access is, is difficult. Um, yeah. I'm right. I'm right in uh, Northwest Connecticut, which we still have like good access to land, but it's, it's the, the gap is, is closing. Um, a lot of people from, from New York have been moving up here the last 20 years and prices have gone crazy, but uh, we could talk about more of that, uh, about land and then all that stuff later. Um, I thought you could touch on kind of some of the methods you use for growing your crops. Cause I know you're into no-till and you mentioned you have cattle too. So how does that all uh, work into your, your vegetable farming operation? Yeah. Well, um, like I said, we, really had no idea what we were doing when we started. And we um, mostly learned through peer networks. And uh, I was fortunate to, in our first year, be able to participate in a mentoring program from NOFA New York. And I got introduced to holistic management by uh, Carl North and Elizabeth Henderson. And so we've been using that uh, Holistic management is a values-based, testable decision-making framework that aims to help us act towards uh, ecological, social, and economic well-being. So we use that as uh, one of the many aids in making decisions. And um, that's kind of led us to a lot of our production strategies and integrating livestock in our production. We, uh, I got interested in the work of uh, Dr. Ref Abubaki, who was a uh, University of Maryland um, ag veg specialist. He had uh, articles in Small Farmers Journal, which was really important to my learning and uh, he was doing really interesting stuff with no-till. So right away, we started trying to learn some of those practices and uh, getting kind of deeply into trying to understand cover crops and how to use them in a horticultural setting. And we're also uh, practically really impacted by the work of Anna and Eric Nordell, who in Trout, Trout Run PA, who run a just kind of amazing market garden with uh, horsepower and just the two of them doing all the work. And so we, a lot of our uh, practices are based on some of the principles that they exemplify in their work. And our, <clears throat> we're kind of settled on, uh, on, type of production that's, I guess, best called uh, cover crop based 
reduced rotational tillage for horticulture and um, Cornell small farms programs got lots of information on that. But we base a lot of our uh, cropping on setting up cover crops to facilitate uh, reduced tillage strategies and growing a lot of fertility in the, rather than having to rely so much on uh, imported fertility. Yeah, that's, that's a struggle of mine. Um, Cause I'm on such small acreage. I'd really like to be able to rotate more and incorporate livestock, but uh, yeah. And, and also because I'm growing seed, uh, I have multiple locations to keep, you know, things from cross-pollinating and yeah it makes it super difficult um when i was doing market gardening it was a lot easier even even that was on a small scale but it was it was a little bit easier to incorporate like composting and be able to do that a little bit more effectively um than have to to haul everything around i've my my gardens uh i have i have two two properties that are a mile apart which is easy and then another one's about like 10 miles away so um yeah, that, that makes it a little bit more difficult. Um, but so what, what are kind of the, um, like maybe do a basic rundown of, of how your, your, uh, cover cropping strategies work. <clears throat> sure. Our, um, we don't have, um, like a very specific rotation. Our rotation is based on our, um, a, a bigger cover crop rotation. We try to keep uh, a few years between uh, crop families, but with market gardening, uh, a lot of the most profitable crops are grouped in a couple of families of brassicas and like all the quinopods. And so it's easy to keep distance between like solanaceous crop and uh cucurbits but harder with brassicas and we we use brassicas in almost all of our cover crop co uh, combinations but we have a general rotation that's based on uh, the nordell's concept which is uh, early crops then the next year a late crop and then a third year of a uh, full year of fallow which is just cover crops and um, we try to plant the early crops into a winter killed cover crop mix. So, and our, we use a kind of a range of tillage regimes from like bare dirt monoculture to um, permanent. Uh, perennial polyculture but is setting up a, an early crop we were trying to go into a winter killed cover mix and either do very shallow surface tillage or uh, no-till planting directly into that killed cover as soon as we can get in the ground and then um, we're pretty much done with that window by uh, May or early June. And then we're going into uh, overwinter covers, which are mostly winter annuals like uh, rye, vetch, crimson clover. And uh, we use different combinations of uh, mowing, uh, crimping, tillage or solarization to try to give um, a, an establishment period that we can get those later crops set up in. And pretty much everything that we uh, grow, we try to get a um, living cover in with the crop as soon as it can tolerate it. And then in the the fallow year, depending on uh, what the previous crop was, we may be uh, no-tilling a cool season mix of covers in the spring, or we'll have um, an overwintered cover mix. 
And then um, with the overwintered stuff, we usually mow that a couple of times and then we'll solarize it in the middle of summer and then no-till a winter kill cover. So we're set up for the following uh, early veg crop. So that's kind of the general picture of how we do stuff. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what, you, what do you use for a winter kill cover crop banks usually? Well, we're trying to, um, for that, for that early veg mix, we're trying to control, uh, winter annual weeds mostly. And we're trying in our, um, climate and with the kinds of soils that I have, I've got to get that planted in the first or second week of August. And we're looking for a combination of, um, crops that are going to produce a lot of root exudates and feed a lot of sugar into the soil. And so millet, uh, sedan grass, sunflowers, and then um, some broad leaves, buckwheat and uh, daikon, and some uh, finer grasses like teff and Italian rye, if we're looking for it to winter kill. That's kind of a general mix. We have been trying to get more flowers in that, those combinations. So oftentimes they'll have phacelia or uh, zinnias as part of that mix. Looking that's for, interesting. Yeah, yeah ra rapid cover, uh, something that's going to um, have some residue left in the spring yeah yeah i haven't heard of zinnias before that's that's interesting uh probably looks pretty nice too before before you get a frost yeah it's uh, nice to have flowers around and the we we end up picking a lot of uh flowers out of covers it's a way to just make sure that we've always got you know sunflowers and zinnias around cool yeah so how how do you utilize your cattle too with that um <clears throat> you're doing rotations with them yeah, we, um, like I said, we've been using holistic management since the beginning. So we do uh, managed grazing. I'm basically, during the grass season, I'm moving the cows pretty much every day. And we've got to the point now where we usually have somewhere around, you know, 25,000, 30,000 pounds of cattle out there. And it uh, gets to the point where that's a an impactful management tool. It's kind of hard to do uh, much with them before you start to have some herd effect and you can really make some impact. And it's, you know, a lot of labor to manage a few cows and not a lot more to manage a couple of dozen. So there we have a, their basis is uh, we've got about 30 acres of permanent pasture and they'll move around that based on the plant recovery, but they usually get four or five grazings on that a year. And then we have windows to be able to use them in uh, what we're cropping in that fallow year. We, as long as the logistics work out, we can graze those cover crops instead of uh, needing to mow them. And then in uh, the late year, we can graze uh, aftermaths. And um, after the ground freezes, we have an opportunity, depending on the snow cover, to go back and hit things that we wouldn't. Use. And, um, you know, 30 cows can do a lot of damage to your broccoli in 15 minutes. And they, they're very conscious of when they have an opportunity, but it's a, it adds a lot of complexity, but it's, a, it's also very rewarding to see the kind of impacts they make. There's just something about cattle that's, uh, and we have a couple of draft horses too, but cattle have this um, just amazing relationship with soil biology that is, it's just not there when you're um, just applying composts or covers. You can, you know, we, we've got locations where we've been applying compost and 
cover cropping in every possible window for 20 years. And, you know, you can graze a cover and then um, grow a crop on it, put another cover crop on it, and you'll see every cow plop in that cover. And, you know, the, the nutrient availability is there, the organic matter is there, but they still have this impact that's kind of uh, just different than the other kind of strategies you can apply. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that firsthand, especially with, I just have chickens um, and even just, just moving them around this year. Um, I, I've definitely seen a difference in how just the grass grows after them moving them. Uh, and then I, I, I did some work on an alpaca farm for several years and seeing their pastures, um, it's, it's amazing. They had such healthy grass and they didn't really manage them at all. It just kind of naturally, you know, they did well. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, you know, a symbiotic relationship there for, for sure. But, um, so you said you had draft horses, do you use them in your farming at all? Or are they, well, not as much as I'd like, you know, I, I try to make sure I work them and, you know, I've got the capacity to do a lot with them and we've done a lot more in the past, but, uh, I mean, there's this general tendency that's, uh, kind of a fundamental, uh, aspect of agriculture that, you know, in agricultural societies, what we're trying to do is drive the cost of subsistence to nothing. And over time, it just uh, requires fewer and fewer producers to be able to meet that need for society. And it's uh, we're always, as producers, in a situation where we've got to do a little bit more with a little bit less every year. So I'm looking forward to the opportunity to be able to uh, do more of that as you know, the future progresses, but try to keep that capacity there and, um, you know, do what I can with them. Cool. Yeah. I I've done, I've, I've worked with horses, but not, not a farming capacity. Um, they're definitely, they're interesting animals and, uh, yeah. So, so you've done like tillage and stuff with them. Um, yeah. Well, we've mostly I've used them for, uh, cultivation, mowing, managing cover crops that way. And it's, uh, you know, the thing that's attractive about, um, fossil power and machines is that energy is just incredibly cheap and you can jump off of a tractor and leave it where you left it. And, it's going to be there in that place the next morning, not need anything from you beyond making sure it's got its fluids and you can go again. Whereas to do something with horses, you got to go get them and then check them all over, hitch them up, lead them out to the equipment and then break it all down after you're done. So you're always looking for like a half day of work minimum to kind of make it worthwhile. And in market gardening, you know, especially if you're like us, we're very small scale, you know, it's me and about two and a half other full-time jobs is what our farm gets by in terms of labor and <clears throat> production just kind of gets sandwiched in the constant process of pick, pack and deliver. So having a half day to do anything is pretty rare for us in terms of like actually producing the stuff. Mostly it's just harvest, wash, get it to market, present it to the public. Yeah. I I don't think people understand too, especially for the market gardener, how many different tasks you're doing in a day. It's not like you're out in the field all day doing, doing the same thing. It's a lot of like, you know, in the morning, morning, you're harvesting in the afternoon, like you said, you're, you're washing stuff and getting it ready. And then afternoon you're, you're shipping it or packing it or people are, you know, picking it up. And then it, you know, it just depends on what time of the year it is too with planting and, and, you know, weed management and whatever else is going on or 
like you said with horses if they get loose and you got to go down the street and get them because i've dealt with that and yeah it's yep. always it's always something different yeah they've um, got their own their own wills yeah um so uh so how many acres do you have in total of cultivation well we last few years we've been growing about eight acres of actual beds of produce but it takes me about 15 acres of um you know in cover crop to be able to or or total you know like arable to do that and then we've got uh just under about a half acre of tunnels with uh, one heated house that we use for propagation and we do some shoot production but uh We've always got about a third out in a full season of cover crop as fallow. So that adds a big chunk of ground. Yeah, that's actually a pretty big uh, operation as far as land size. Um, yeah, I don't, I've, I haven't done more than an acre personally, um, you know, as far as uh, veg production. So, yeah. That's it, a lot. I mean, it, yeah. any scale can be just a a huge amount of uh, demand depending on, you know, how you're set up. We're yeah. Really, I... <laughs> we're really focused on uh, minimum labor input in our production. Like uh, last year we grew about 460 beds. Everything's kind of broken up into standard 200 foot by just over five foot bed. So it's about a thousand square feet. And we break those into units of 12 beds separated by a 13th bed that's in perennial grasses. And out of those 460 beds, we either passed a hoe or hand weeded about 18 of them. So we've got a pretty high tolerance for, um, companion cropping of all different yeah. kinds and uh you know our work really is uh, pretty much just planting and uh picking and then we you know most of the stuff in between is pretty mechanized and uh very low cultivation heavily dependent on mowing as a way to manage crops yeah, so you're you're spacing everything for a track mostly for a tractor then. So you have like what like four or five foot. Well, we bed. have yeah, we've got a five foot, little over five foot bed center, and everything's controlled traffic. The wheel tracks are in the same location year after year, and uh, most of the crops are set up on a two row per bed um, scheme, so we can. We do um, a fair amount of Romo as a way to manage the inner crop row space. Uh, so we will set a crop either by transplant or direct seed. And as soon as it's established, get another uh, cover crop established between the rows and then mow that in, uh, instead of cultivation and um so it requires a kind of wide spacing and that we do with uh, a lot of the larger seeded crops the stuff that we do no-till is all set up that way and then we a fair amount of our about 20 percent of our gross is uh machine harvested baby salads so they're in a more um a more intensive tillage setup we get to something approximating bare soil and that's uh, stuff that doesn't get any cultivation and uh, is planted on anywhere between five and 15 row um, per bed. So my beds, I do, I do more of like, uh, like a traditional market garden. So I have like 30, 30 inch beds with anywhere between like a foot to a foot and a half um, just walkway. That's, yep. that's pretty much, you know, and then I, I'm either hoeing the walkway or I'm just putting down straw, uh, for, you know, for a cover. And that's, and that's basically it. Um, 
so yeah i've 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 worked beds that large before and it's yeah it's it's a lot to manage um yeah, so it's a it's to. a lot to get through too i mean it, um i try to keep everything to that 200 foot max length just in terms of you know we're head down most of the time but it's nice to be able to pick your head up and see the end of the row yeah and you know i know it's uh we do a lot of turning around in in terms of equipment it's not the ideal setup but uh you know season's long and it's made up of all these little jobs that you need to kind of knuckle down and get through and it's nice to have them a little bit more unitized so and in uh in the tunnels we use um you know, things are more intensive. We do uh, a seven row of seven inch spacing and um, real narrow walkways and uh, using a lot of chip in there. I've, the, uh, our fertility inputs really are, um, we get about 200 tons of arborist chip a year and um, using about three tons of composted poultry um, litter and sometimes some minerals. And then uh, I buy in about between 60 and 90 tons of hay, which uh, we feed in kind of a rotating uh, winter yard setup where I concentrate the cattle in a, you know, quarter to half acre lot and uh, bed that with about four inches deep of chip and then i'll feed you know between 30 and 60 tons of hay either in one or two years and then return that to cover crops and then back to veg crops after that and so we work around the farm slowly with that a quarter acre at a time on the most productive stone free level land okay yeah, that uh, definitely helps doing doing uh, chips, and then if you have cattle on it too, that's even that's even better. Yeah, chips um, can get you in a lot of trouble just uh, without that nitrogen source, and uh, I think also the biology input really helps the you know the fungal community that can break that wood down. But it is really challenging to uh, get clean energy inputs that are not going to cause you a lot of trouble in the future and woods looking a lot more attractive as time goes on. Yeah. I, I use chips a little bit. Uh, my problem is because I'm so small scale. If I put them down, uh, I have a hard time. I have no method really to like direct seed into them. Mm -hmm. um, so I could transplant crops, but then they're going to be there. You know, the chips will take a few years to break down. So it's kind of, they're just hard to manage for me. I, you know, yeah, they're, I'm, I'm they've not... got some real drawbacks. I mean, they can uh, leave your crops very hungry. Yeah. Um, so uh, I wanted to ask you too about tobacco since uh, I, I love, I love uh, growing tobacco um, and consuming it as well, which, you know, it's a, <laughs> a little bit of a taboo this, these days, but uh, I think if it's, if it's done in the correct way, it's fine. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I love tobacco too. I mean, it's just a beautiful plant and, um, you know, I don't have a problem with tobacco. It's always been a friend of me and I think it helps me get through my day. I mean, laborers have bodies and, you know, it's, uh, I think things help us get to be able to make the contributions that we need to make and, you know, I look at tobacco as an ally around that. And uh, I've grown it off and on for, I don't know, 30 years. And it's just an amazing plant. It comes in so many different forms. And it's uh, it's just a beautiful process to working with it and uh, seeing it mature and go through the different kinds of phases that it uh, goes through when it's being processed into a product you can use. So have you ever grown a commercially or is it just, just for kind of a, a personal hobby thing? Yeah, no, it's just personal. And, um, you know, I like to have, um, all different kinds of plants around. So we grow a lot of herbs and some perennials and, uh, 
really focused on uh, walnuts. So that's been kind of the tree companion the whole time. We're just starting now to plant trees from the trees that we started, you know, 20 plus years ago. Cool. So uh, what's, what's been your favorite kind of tobacco to grow so far? Well, I kind of settled the last few years on uh, Harrow Velvet, which is uh, a burly, but uh, real blonde, mild tobacco, um, does well in our climate, uh, produces all right. And uh, I mean, I think that um, I would like to go back and try some other varieties. <clears throat> I really enjoyed growing uh, a Modoc uh variety it's uh coyote tobacco really small uh plant a lot more aromatic and um, has some different uh kind of smoking properties than like the virginia tobaccos but it's uh real small plant so like i said mostly i've been growing this hair of velvet it's just uh easy to get along with not a real strong tobacco yeah it's also easier to cure too you don't have to do anything fancy just let it let it air cure in a barn as long as you got enough humidity and not too much and it'll you know it'll color up real nice so yeah yeah, yeah i've been um i did burley this year and i've been trying to do more um connecticut uh varieties so more cigar varieties and that and that's been that's been fun um my goal is to one day grow and roll my own cigar so yeah uh, uh, it's gonna take yeah, there's a lot to it a lot to yeah. it yeah and <clears throat> not only growing it but uh most most cigar tobacco is aged for at least a year or two so mm. it's it's a time thing so I, I i have a crop that i grew and it cured well so in a, in a year or so i'll figure out what, what to do with it and in the meantime i'll keep growing it but uh but yeah it's it's a it's a great plant um definitely definitely enjoyable to grow and and very ornamental too i think i think that's overlooked by a lot of people um i do yeah. know some some uh landscape and, and garden designers who use it frequently which is awesome because it, it really it, it's got its place and and like you were saying before there's so many variations of height and shape and flower color and structure like you know i've i've grown you know your, your average burley is maybe you know if you if you top it four to five feet tall but i've grown um i have a, i have a, a oaxacan tobacco that i grew this year and i and i did top the plants and they must have gotten like almost 15 feet tall wow they were, they were over my my greenhouse is my greenhouse is 12 feet and they were like pushing you know they were over the greenhouse um so and big big open flowers to um structure pink it, oh, it was beautiful but yeah they're very showy Yes. Yes, they are. Um, yeah. So I thought we could move on to some of your thoughts on land use and, uh, taxes. If, if there's, if you, if you're ready for that. Um, sure. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I wear people out with it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I see you posting, posting some interesting stuff. Um, uh, and, and things that are, uh, not really in the, in the mainstream, um, I mean, a lot of the concepts I'm familiar with just cause I'm, you know, I'm a farmer, I understand land use and I'm also a little bit of a, uh, of a, of a politics guy. Um, not so much like in the daily news cycle thing, but more, more into the theory and, and actual, uh, praxis of how, how do we conduct a society with a polity in, in today's world. So, yeah, I thought, I don't know where you want to start on that, but, um, but I guess I, uh, you know, you you know where to go with it. Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, um, kind of the central question of my life has been um, how do we get our lives in connection with each other in the community of life in a way that makes that possible and coherent. You know, how do we reconcile um, the fact that we are our own uh, worst competitor and that we're also, um, this social being, you know, everybody comes into the world through the body of their mother and is raised 
through the helplessness of infancy to the capacity to act. And so it's natural for us to understand that uh, nobody's a self-made person. You know, we're, we're held in society and that's what gives us um, meaning in our lives, you know, is the contribution that we make to other people. And so when I think about that and, you know, I look around at the social arrangements that we have and I, you know, for me, they really grow out of this strategy that we've developed um, called agriculture. We're, agri we're an agricultural civilization. And, um, you know, we came into that from a different kind of subsistence for, you know, what's really as if you look at it, the, the majority of the way we've been on this earth is that we treated land as something that we held commonly or used commonly. And that's just really challenging to do when, when your subsistence becomes dependent on uh, controlling locations and making investments in uh, locations, what you know, you call improvements to be able to have uh, the capacity to carry more population per acre than you can in a herding or hunting subsistence. And so we've developed our social arrangements based on trying to make it uh, sensible and usable to society to be able to hold tenure over location but it doesn't free us from the fact that all of our needs depend on applying human effort and creativity to land or its products so we have these uh, difficult challenges in how we can allocate the use of natural opportunities in a way that is uh, that respects that we all have this individual creation but also we're all equal creatures on this earth and um, it took a long time for me to try to understand how that lives in me and I think it was made most clear when I read uh, Henry George's Progress in Poverty. And he's uh, one of a long line of uh, political philosophers, moral philosophers in kind of the liberal tradition that um, is now maybe uh, as a political philosophy best characterized as cooperative individualism. And that holds that uh, people are of equal moral worth and <clears throat> they all have an equal need for land to be able to have their existence and their individuality. And that people have a unique claim to determine the use of their person, but only an equal claim to determine the use of the earth, which is you know, God's gift to all of us equally. So when I look at the situation for agriculture, the condition that I see is that it's ever more challenging for people to be able to access natural opportunities and apply their gifts in a way that um, meets their own needs and can also make a contribution to others. And it takes the form essentially that land values are always going up and it always takes uh, a larger portion of production to pay for access to those natural opportunities. And that's um, the concept of rent. Rent is, uh, it's a differential in the productive capacity of locations. Essentially, it's what it's the portion of production that we're willing to give up to access uh, a more productive location than is available for free or for without some kind of um, transfer of production to access. And it's kind of fundamentally different than uh, 
the product that we get from our work, which is wages, that if someone has the capacity to exclude people from natural opportunities um, without claiming a portion of the production that occurs there, they have a continually growing capacity to claim more natural opportunities. And it becomes harder and harder for people who are involved directly in production to be able to um, meet the costs of production and their own needs for subsistence. And I think that plays out in the kinds of production that we get, that uh, there's strong kind of incentives to externalize the costs of production, to um, overuse the fertility, to um, externalize some of the pollution, the negative impacts. And I think it's strongly implicated that social arrangement is strongly implicated in the kind of consistent cyclic um, collapse of agricultural civilizations, that uh, production's not allocated in a way that actually meets our needs for um, productivity and also care for each other and for the community of life that we're part of and that we depend on. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting how it all works and how it feeds back on, on itself. Um, I, I see one of the biggest problems with agriculture now with, with land allocation. I know that's a, a big deal where I'm at, or at least people talk about it is, I don't, I don't think, you know, there's this, I think a misunderstanding of private and public as well and what makes up a polity. Um, Cause on the one hand you have very wealthy people who can buy up uh, large percentages of land. So a, a lot of people will be like, well, we need to have it owned by the community. And what ends up happening is then the state has control of that, but the state is not, not some type of, uh, you know, horizon that is uh equally distributed either so it ends up in whoever controls that and it, it just and 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 it seems to be those two groups that just you know over time just get more and more of land or or at least this the say of who can do what with the land um and the actual communities who live on that land uh, aren't able to access them and use them accordingly um yeah, the the rent thing is interesting to me too. I I I don't see it from that way necessarily. That's a very so that, that that's like Georgism, right? Is basically well, I mean, it was uh, Ricardo came up with uh, yeah, okay. the rent, <clears throat> but okay. it was uh, you know Adam Smith, John Locke, yeah, um, John Stuart Mill, um, Ricardo. Uh, Thomas Paine, Ben Franklin, all those guys were talking about the same thing, that eventually uh, land covers the burden of community necessity because land is the source of all wealth. And um, eventually that is what we depend on to meet our needs. And we can either do it directly and allocate the excess beyond the cost of production to community needs, or we can let individuals capture that and then try to get some of it back to be able to, um, you know, create the things that give land value in the first place, the roads and the schools and the administration and all of the things that we do that eventually return to land value. And we yeah. have lots of ways to try to, to remedy the basic dynamic, which is, you know, kind of separating people into those who produce and those who get to um, reap where they have not sown. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then also too now with technology and, and the whole uh, cyberspace and internet and, and things that are not physical, but still exist within a physical realm, how to remedy, you know, how that all factors in is, uh, is another wrench in the works. I, I feel like, especially within the last 10 years, it's been, it's been crazy to, to you know, technology in general and, and 
Yeah, technology yeah. has the effect of making land more productive. And it does. So, so it will it will as long as we capture land rents <clears throat> individually or into private property, those who capture them will have more capacity to control more land, which is what they do. And you see that land ownership is highly concentrated and concentrating and individuals own, you know, millions of acres. And, um, you know, we look at it, it's easiest to see in agriculture where, I mean, there's just massive concentration in land ownership. But if you look at land value, that all concentrates in the urban center. And there, the, the speculative um, aspect of uh, land ownership really holds um, land that could be go going to higher, more productive uses out of use. And it puts massive pressure on agricultural land. So the, you know, it's easy to see how hard it is for young farmers to get into agriculture. But the burdens that, um, you know, rent capture by monopolies puts on production is through the entire chain of production. And it, it impacts the availability of actually productive capital to production, too. So as, uh, you know, we've adopted these strategies, we see that our production migrates to other societies where the wages are intolerably low for us and we give away our community capacity to meet our needs. So it, it's some really wicked problems, almost intractable. And we, you, you set up these um, incentives to maintain the status quo that are really hard to address that, you know, we try to use um, logical constraints to, capture the um, impulses that these kind of dual impulses that we have, which is the one to kind of make a natural monopoly for us as organisms. We're always trying to meet our needs with the least expenditure of effort or cost, but then we're a social organism. So we have to, you know, all of our strategies have to do with being able to agree to the same story enough that we can collaborate and um, organize and divide our subsistence finally so that we can, as a whole, have more than if we were each operating as an individual. And it's uh, very hard to reconcile, especially when you know institutions get captured by um, people who are you know, having the benefit of really uh, profoundly powerful privileges that uh, it's very hard for uh, people who are experiencing detriment and having um, low reward for the kinds of efforts that they're creating and putting out into the commonality, the polity to be able to have access to power, to be able to address the situation. And there's a strong tendency for people who are in a disadvantaged class to, you know, try to gain access to power just so that they can enjoy the privileges rather than analyzing and understanding and finding alternative strategies that might be more equitable or just. Yes. Yeah. And just in the true sense of, of, as I would say, God's justice, um, as opposed to our earthly justice. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a problem. And with agriculture, specifically in the United States, you know, you have basically farmers concentrated, you know, majority of which grow commodities in the Midwest and such are, are, you know, hemmed in by organization, you know, by the government mainly in Washington D.C. and and it's just, you know, it's, you know, it's it's hard for people to manage their own affairs in specific areas with 
you know, something as large as the federal government. And I don't know, it's just, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, personally, I think for, for farmers and for communities in general, the best way is to, you know, get them as local as possible. Um, because then, especially like we're talking about land use, the people who live in the area, who use the land, who see the land are there, know what its best use is. Um, not somebody who's not even in physically in that space. Um, cause we all have to occupy a physical space. Uh, yeah. And you alive. get to see the impacts of your actions. Yeah. If the, you know, if the, uh, the chain of production and consumption is a little shorter, we have a little bit more access to the kind of information we need to be able to see the impacts of our management decisions. So that's been a, you know, an important strategy for us is that we're all direct consumer, that uh, it's all based on long-term relationships. You know, we're always looking for lifetime customers and we have, you know, customers who um, are children, grown children of customers and employees who are grown children of customers and uh, there's a lot of stability in what we do there's you know um, agricultural production is just very risky uh, especially if you're trying to depend on it um, for the mainstay of your subsistence so the things that have helped us be able to have resilience are, you know, um, trying to really understand the impacts of our actions on the land that we're using and also uh, being really connected to the people who are using the products and uh, letting them have access to us and the land and trying to learn from them and have them learn with us yeah that's that's been my whole thing too is is you know even though i sell my seeds online for instance that's that's not where my focus is you know it's always with um with with my community um you know and that's where i'm building it from, from the ground up uh it's it's hard it's hard to do it any other way especially for a farmer um it's it's a lot it's better to to build your community and and reach outward than to try and reach outward and pull your community community inward. It, it doesn't usually work out that great. <laughs> yeah. We found uh, we that tried. too, that, uh, yeah. <clears throat> you know, we, if you look at production, if you look at ag as a totality, you know, it operates at a loss and uh, it's supported by off farm income, uh, just enormous energy inputs. If you look at the thermodynamics of it, it's, uh, you know, bad and getting worse all the time. Well, yeah. And monet monetary policy now where it's money's being printed, uh, it's not backed by anything. And then farmers are being paid to either to grow or to not grow certain things. And yeah, so it's just total misallocation. Yeah, subsidies capital. are hugely, hugely yeah. impactful. And, um, you know, it's like 60% of the productions by 6% of the producers. And they're essentially like all other businesses, the big monopoly businesses are all real estate companies, essentially. They kind of make their, they, everybody operates at cost and the smaller producers are challenged with trying to perpetually go faster, lower their unit cost of production to try to make a margin in a market that's dominated by the main producers who operate at cost. And those main producers usually have a finance division that writes production notes to everybody who's trying to make a profit in a market that's dominated by people who are operating at cost. And then they usually have a rural real estate development corporation that takes the land that's put up as collateral for 10 cents on the dollar and breaks it into units that developers can consume. And that's kind of the story of production and um, you know, manufacturing, merchandising, like Amazon, Walmart, Cargill, they're all real estate corporations. They're 
in the business of holding land while it goes up in value. Yeah. Well, um, on that note, I don't want to black pill everyone too much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what what are your feelings on the uh, future of farming? Because I'm personally, I'm I'm optimistic overall. I, I think in the short term, short term, there's going to be a lot of uh, pain. But I think long term, um, people who have a connection to land and solid communities are gonna are gonna come out on top. So what, yeah, what I agree. I mean, I think people are just incredibly creative. You know, that's our strength. Is our like consciousness that we are you know i think our purpose is to celebrate creation and we have that as just a primary drive and so we experience what is and we respond and so i see that going forward that's something that you know lifts me up every day i i look forward to the opportunity to get out of bed and face the you know, opportunity that creation gives us every day. And so um, it's really hard to know. I, you know, things that I think are incredibly have the potential to make huge impacts are, you know, changes in tax policy or uh, subsidy policy, uh, energy technology developments could be hugely impactful. Um, you know, there's, efforts to try to bypass photosynthesis as a part of human food production that seem to be um, having some at least, uh, you know, theoretical um, practicability. So it's really hard to know what direction things will go, but it, it is, uh, you know, history shows again and again that people in faced with uh, kind of large systems change are returned to the land and um, that the culture can change really significantly, really quickly, that we're, we're held together by um, a lot of shared beliefs and people have the capacity to change their beliefs really quickly. So I'm, I'm hopeful that people are able to see the, the reality that, you know, most of our capacity to be results from photosynthesis that happens in real time on real land and with us participating and that we will be able to do more of that as we have more connection and more learning from our shared wisdom. Cool. Well, is there anything else you want to, you want to talk about or, or touch on? Well, I, I mean, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to talk. And I think that the kinds of things that you're doing are really important being able to, um, you know, expose people to opportunities to like, think about themselves in, you know, different kind of contexts and, Ag is in this place where uh, it's just really hard to get people um, to like engage and feel like there's opportunity there. And there's so much reward um, if you can get beyond the kind of the inherent challenges. And it, it's still like uh, the foundational activity of our society. And it's there's nothing more important for our societal well-being or for our personal well-being than to be able to um, connect with the the free source of energy that of sunlight hitting this planet and meeting plants and turning into the capacity to support life that's like um, what gives us our daily bread and has the opportunity to just create uh really rich lives it's been um really gratifying for me to be able to live a life in connection with that in the kind of human connection that comes from that so it's great to see somebody who's inspired to put that out and you know share their experience and join with other people and celebrating that so i'm grateful for that great 
Well, I usually ask uh, a couple quick questions before we before we leave. Um, the first is, what's your favorite tool or uh, piece of equipment on your farm? Well, in holistic management, we think about tools a lot differently than in other contexts. The holistic management identifies four tools, which is uh, technology, all forms of technology fire, using fire in the environment, um, rest, which is like withdrawing management from the environment and living organisms. So uh, living organisms are the things that um, inspire me with and awe me, the, the wonder that is in the complexity and connection and diversity that is the community of life. And so I'm always looking for opportunities to replace, especially technology with uh, understanding and working with living organisms. And I think that's the, you know, been the really uh, the tool that's the most attractive to me going forward. Okay. And, uh, What's one word of advice or wisdom you'd give, uh, especially to new farmers and gardeners? I mean, I hate to say it, but buy land. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. Any any way you can, uh, even if you even if there's not a house on it, you know, uh, just start somewhere. I think that's one of the biggest hurdles to people who. Uh, especially here on social media and which is popular, you know, everyone's the gardening thing and the foodie thing is still popular. The, you know, the, the farmer's market, it's all popular, but a lot of people kind of just uh, engage in it on a very surface level. And uh, I know a lot of people want to dig deeper and yeah, I agree. Just, just do it. All right. Well, um, Willie, do you want to give everyone uh your your links or yeah well we've got to find uh, you. the farm is uh, little seed gardens we've got a website littleseedgardens.com um and i've got a blog at uh subsistenceethic.wordpress where i a little bit more uh, delve a little more deeply into the kinds of things that i don't want to present through the lens of my business and fairly active lately on Twitter. I've just really enjoyed that community. I learned so much from people on there. It's how we connected and just, uh, I think there's a lot of utility. That, you know, all kinds of forums have their challenges, but so it's been a real uh, great learning tool for me. I agree. Well, it was great talking with you. Likewise, I really enjoyed it. Good luck with the coming growing season. On forward to what you do well that's it for this episode i'd like to thank willie for coming on you can find him on twitter at partial truth you can find me on instagram at focus seeds i'm also on x formerly twitter as well as focus seeds or check out my website focus seeds.com focus is spelled p-h-o-c-a-s 